Careful. All right, adults, if you would turn, if you would turn to Joshua chapter 6 this morning, as we continue to look at this uh, wonderful book of God's faithfulness to his people in conquering the land and coming home to a promised land. I'm thankful this week, uh, as you guys are turning there, I'm thankful this week for uh, being able to get away. Some of you know that I was, I was at a conference for most of the week, and it was uh, incredibly refreshing to be able to do that. But I am thankful to be here with you and to be able to worship with you and be able to, to hear God's Word with you together. I'm thankful as well, uh, as I've said earlier, for so many volunteers uh, Lord, who serve us well here. And I pray that you would consider how you would do that as well. I'm thankful as well for the opportunities that we have to hear God's word like we do this morning and to hear of his faithfulness, not just to people of old, not just to Joshua and the Israelites, but to hear of his faithfulness to us today. We so often think about Joshua, and we think about stories like what we're going to read today, accounts of Jericho, and we think of, wow, God was in the business of showing up. But this morning, my prayer is, is that we, as we think about these things, as we contemplate these things, that we would understand that God is still in the business of showing up, and that he wants to do so. He wants to show up. He wants to do miraculous things, and he is if we will pay attention. This morning, if you are able, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning in chapter 5. We're actually going to start in verse 13 of chapter 5, and we're going to read all of chapter 6. So rather long passage this morning. If you need to take a seat in the middle of that, please feel free to do that. It says here, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days." Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with great, a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every one straight before him." So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. 
And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horn before the ark walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men who were walking before them in the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, and so they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So all the people shouted and the trumps were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two, to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men went who had been spies, went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all of her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame went in all the land. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we read this passage. For those of us that grew up in Sunday school it is, a, it is a familiar passage, a familiar story, one that we could have probably told as children, and certainly we have heard our children even recite for us this morning, Lord, that you desired for your people to trust you, to see an insurmountable fortress, and to believe that you could work miracles. Father, I believe that you are calling us to the same this morning. That you have called us into the work of the Lord God Most High. 
and that you desire to see us overcome obstacles that we would never think imaginable if we will just trust you. If we will just have faith. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would unfold this before us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand our dependence upon you. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we see Joshua at the beginning of our passage here in verse 13, he is near Jericho, is what we're told. If you will allow a little holy imagination, you can imagine that Joshua has experienced a lot in the last few weeks, days, that they ha- he has been named the leader of this people of Israel. He's taken Moses' spot, certainly big shoes to fill. He has uh, sent out spies that have been saved by Rahab and spared. He has seen and led his people across the Jordan River on dry land as God stopped up that river. He has experienced uh, a time of national reconciliation with God that is outwardly expressed through circumcision and through the participation in the Passover. There's a lot been going on. But now it's time for Israel to do that which God had led them here to do, and that was to claim the promised land. And that meant there was going to be a fight. It meant there was going to be a battle. And now Jericho, now Joshua stands in the plains of Jericho, and he's looking at this city. He's looking at this ancient fortress. And oh, what must have been going through his mind. He had been in battle before. He had seen victory before, but he had never been the man. He had led men to fight, but he had never been the one to give the plan. He had always been second in command to Moses. He had always trusted in Moses' word from God. And now he stands here, and this is something completely different. Joshua must have been thinking to himself, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? Do we lay siege? Do we wait? Do we starve them to death? Do we try to scale the walls and risk thousands of lives in doing so? The heaviness of trying to come up with a plan to defeat the seemingly impossible. And in the, in the middle of all of that, as Joshua is standing there next to Jericho, most assuredly looking and asking the Lord, what are we to do? He meets a man. He meets a man. It says there that suddenly he looked up and behold, a man was standing before him with his, with, with his drawn sword in his hand. This man was a warrior. He was a fighter. And he had come to do business And Joshua, startled by his appearance, asked a very important question. He asked him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Joshua had to be be wondering, is this a spy of Jericho that has come out? Is this an embassy from Jericho that is here to negotiate 
Or maybe worst case scenario, did Jericho someone ha- somehow slip word out that they were in need and this is a mercenary, the leader of a, of a foreign army come to defend Jericho? His mind must have been racing a mile a minute. What is going on? And so we ask the same question. Who is this stranger? Who is this individual that shows up before Joshua in the plains of Jericho with his sword drawn? Is it an angel? Is it something else? I think we have a few clues here that tell us exactly who this is. He says that he is the commander of the Lord's army. And we certainly see pictures of different people this could be. Maybe it's an angel. Maybe it's Michael. But one of the great pictures that we see in the New Testament specifically is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one in Revelation that comes riding back on the white steed in the white robes with a sword in his hand. He is the conqueror. We see further clues here that this is more than just an angel. You'll notice that it says that after he gives his answer, Joshua fell on his face and worshipped. Whenever we see in the in this entirety of Scripture, when we see an individual fall on their face and worship an angel, what is the response of the angel? No, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> like, we don't do that. There is only one worthy of worship, and that is God alone. Get up. Probably the best examples we see of this are in Revelation. I love reading Revelation when John sees an angel in all of the angel's splendor and he falls down and John begins to worship and the angel's like, blah, 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 get up. And yet what do we see here? Joshua falls on his face and he begins to worship this individual and at no point does that individual say, stop what you're doing. We only worship God. He allows it to continue. Not only do we see that, but notice what he says here in verse 15, he says, And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. That should ring a bell, just a little one, in your mind. Who else was told to remove the sandals from their feet? Was it not Moses? As he stood before the burning bush that was not being consumed and God spoke through the bush and he tells Moses, take off your sandals for this ground is holy. Why is that ground holy? Is it because it's some special spot? No, it's because the presence of the Lord was in that place. God makes places special. Places don't make anything special. And so the commander of the Lord says, Joshua, take off your sandals. And it's meant to remind us of the same interaction that Moses had with God. It is not that this place is special. It is that Joshua is in the presence of someone special. And so along with many other scholars, I come to the conclusion that this individual is not merely some angel, but that Joshua is in the presence of of Christ. He's in the presence of God. Joshua falls on his face and says, are you for us or are you against us? It's an important question. We would think we would know the answer. If I were to stop there, if we hadn't read the passage and you were to say, hey, Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, the people of God, ask, this, ask God, 
are you for me or you are against me? We would say, of course. It's a yes, right? Yes, he's for Israel. Yes, he's for Joshua. I mean, he's led them across the river. He's had Passover. They've done all these things. Of course, he's for them. And yet, what's the response? No. Joshua did not ask a yes or no question. He asked, are you for them or are you for us? And the response of the commander of the Lord's army is no. You're wrong on both accounts. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And then he says something absolutely remarkable. Now I have come. Now I have showed up. I don't know about you, but when I was a little kid, um, I would occasionally get into wrestling matches with friends. And some of them developed into a little bit more than a, a friendly wrestling match. At some, at some point, usually someone like did something that was cheating, below the belt, so to speak, sometimes literally. And it became a little bit more than just something that was friendly, right? It becomes a little bit more aggressive, and you're fighting, and you're going back and forth with one another, and then an adult shows up, right? And specifically, in the worst case scenario, dad shows up. Now I'm here, and this is over. This is done. We're not doing this anymore. The commander of the Lord's army comes. He's not on anyone's side. He's worried about his own glory. And he says, now I have come. This is over. There is no fight here. I've taken care of it. I want to go back though to what he says there just for a second when he says that he when he says no as I mentioned he's worried about his own glory now if we were to say that about someone an individual a person and we were to say they're all about themselves they're all about making a name for themselves that's not a good thing to say it's not a compliment to say that someone is all about themselves but when we're talking about a holy God when we're talking about a one of a kind, when we're talking about someone that is ultimately just, all righteous, when we're talking about the creator of the world, the savior of the world, for him to be about his glory is what's best. Because when, he, when he's about his glory, then we are the ones that benefit. There was confidence here. The people of Israel carried the name of God and if God's all about his glory, do you think there was any chance that they were going to fail? If God is all about his glory and they are carrying the name of God, do you think there was any chance that Israel was going to fail? Absolutely not. In the same breath, it's why Jesus tells us that nothing will prevail against the church. The church carries his name. She will see victory. At the same time, we should understand this. We understand that if God is all about his glory and we carry his name or the Israel carries his name, while we can be assured of victory when we follow him, we can also be assured of discipline when we do not. Ask Israel. The people of God, when they were obedient, they saw victory. When they were disobedient, they saw discipline 
in the same way, church, both as individuals and corporately. Let's understand that we serve a God that is all about his glory. And if we claim to have his name and bear his image, then if we, if we are obedient to follow him in faith, then we will experience victory. But do not think that if we do that which he says not to do, that if we are, diso if we are disobedient, that he will not discipline. That he will somehow stand idly by and allow it to happen. The New Testament tells us this way. You know that you are sons because you are disciplined. If you were not disciplined, then that means you're illegitimate. Sometimes we wonder why the evil, why evil people prosper. It's because they don't bear the name of God. <laughs> and God's all about his glory. God will take care of them later. But you bear his name, so he's going to take care of you right now. It's kind of like the famous parental saying, you're my child, not them. I'm not worried about them. Their parents can take care of them. Their parents can do that. You're mine. To which I always thought, I wish this moment I was theirs. <laughs> but he cares about you and how you act. And if we will be obedient, then he'll give victory. But it's a startling answer. No, I'm not for either one of you. I'm for me. And I've come now. It's my belief that uh, as we look at chapter 5 into chapter 6, that this is one unit. That this meeting where he meets the commander of the Lord uh, flows into chapter 6. That the instructions that we see at the beginning of chapter 6, 1 through 7, are the continuation of this discussion. That God not only appears to him in this moment, but this is where he gets the plan. This is where he gets the plan. And it is an absurd strategy. It's an absurd strategy with an overwhelming success. It's an absurd plan. We've already talked about this with the kids. God tells Joshua, I want you to pick up the ark. I want you to grab some priests, grab some tr trumpets. And I want you and all the warriors to walk around Jericho once a day for six days and then on the seventh day I want you to do it seven times and when you get done with that I want you to yell really loud if you were to draw this plan up and not tell anyone that this came from God but draw this plan up and hand it to a general handle it hand it to someone that is even under you <coughs> they would think you were crazy you want us to do what? You want us to walk around? You want us to shout really loud? And that's going to make the walls come down? Have you lost your ever-loving mind? They're going to mock us. They're going to laugh at us. Like everyone's going to hear about this. It's not going to just be the people of Jericho Everyone in this area is going to hear about this. That our battle plan was to walk in circles and yell. It's a crazy plan. And yet, it's interesting, the response. It's crazy obedience. Crazy obedience to an absurd plan. Notice Joshua doesn't question this. Joshua goes back to the people and says, okay, gather the priests, get the horns, we're going to go for a walk. 
And not just Joshua. The people of Israel go along with it. They don't seemingly question it. They get their stuff. They get up. They follow that ark around once a day for six days. They yell when he tells them to yell. They're all in. And trust me, if we have learned nothing from the Old Testament, if Israel or anyone complains, God's going to record it. Right? Like there's been plenty of other plans that have been that God gives that someone says, uh, I think that's nuts. Let's try again. There's been plenty of other times that God has told Israel, you need to do this. And Israel said, uh, I don't think so. The Bible is not afraid to, to talk about Israel's lack of faith. So I think if there was grumbling, I think if there was someone that said, hey, maybe we should come up with a better plan. I think if Joshua would have had a moment of pause, I'm pretty sure the word of God would have written it down. These people had crazy obedience to the word of God, even though it seemed foolish. Even though it seemed an impossible plan. And so they march once a day for six days, blowing some trumpets, not doing anything else, until finally on the seventh day, they march seven times and they shout. And what happens when they shout, but the walls of Jericho fall down? <laughs> little, part of, little part of me imagines myself standing in that vast army of God. I've walked for six days around this place. I've walked seven times today. I've yelled with all of my might. I see the wall fall down, and my immediate thought is, that actually worked. Little part of me. We see here at the end of chapter 6 that, there, that God's absurd plan followed by the crazy obedience of his people leads to God's amazing faithfulness. It's incredible. God's absurd plan matched with his people's crazy obedience leads to God's amazing faithfulness. So much so that what we're going to see next week in chapter 7, I want you to make this connection. This was such an overwhelming success that next week we're going to see them fight AI and they're going to suffer a loss. They're going to get defeated. And in chapter 7, we're told that they lose some folks, right? It says that... Uh, they killed 36 men. Now, don't get me wrong. Any loss of life is bad. But when you're in a war, when you're in a fight, there's an expectation, unfortunately, that someone is going to lose their life. They were thousands of them fighting. Jericho had been such a resounding success that when thousands fought and they lost 36 people, they were devastated. When we fight battles, they probably would have, if they would have won and lost 36 people, they're probably been like, well, okay, we won. Jericho was such a victory that the loss of a minimal amount of people was absolutely heart-wrenching. For Israel. The walls of Jericho didn't just fall down. God spared lives. 
amazing faithfulness for God. He shows up when he says he will. He's trustworthy. He is, will accomplish the things that he says he will accomplish. So what about us? What about us this morning? We sit here and we listen to this story of Jericho, probably one that for some of you, you have heard your entire life. Some of you are sitting here and you're in your 80s and you have heard this since you were two years old. How do we apply this for us? It's an amazing story. It's a good story. It's a miraculous thing that God does here. We're tempted to walk away from it going, wow, I'm glad God did that. But never allow it to apply to ourselves. And yet, as I know you as a people, as your pastor, as I know how life in general goes beyond just even knowing your individual stories, I know this, we still have Jerichos. We still have Jerichos. First and foremost, we have a sinful heart. First and foremost, you and I have been, the Bible tells us, born with flesh that desires to rebel against God. That we have, there is a creator that made each one of us, that knit us together before we were born. And yet, as soon as we came out, we immediately wanted to walk the opposite direction. We immediately wanted to rebel. And because of that, we now face condemnation. We have already been found guilty, and rightfully so. And now we face condemnation. We face the judgment for which we earned. The Bible tells us that is our biggest problem, and it is a Jericho. What do we do about that? We face a fallen world. As I talk to you, as you share with me, as we hear, we share one another's burdens. We understand we live not only in a place with our own sinful heart, but we deal with a sinful world. We deal with grief. Some of you have lost loved ones, and, and for you, that is a Jericho. How do I get past this? How do I handle this? For some of you, it's a relationship. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's someone that you just come into contact with on a regular basis, but that relationship represents a Jericho in your life. They go, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's too difficult. It's too big. Some of us deal with illness. Some of us deal with frustrations at work. They're Jerichos in our life. I don't know. We deal with a lost world. God has put us here for in the time and place and has sent us out into our community and he has placed us here in Vandalia for a purpose and yet when we go out we're met by just vast lostness. We're met by people that are hostile to the gospel that don't want to talk about it. We're met by a society that's increasingly hostile to even hearing anything that comes from the Bible that increasingly would rather desire to cancel us so call it. And yet we have been given this mission 
to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and to make disciples. And we look at all of it and we say, how is that possible? How can I change a heart? How can I share the gospel? We have Jerichos all around us. And God, yet God, in his infinite wisdom, has given us a plan. But it is an absurd strategy. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Going down to verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one who boasts, or let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This answer to these Jerichos, the answer to how we are to overcome, the answer to how we are to deal with these things, it is simply the cross. And yet the cross is folly, Paul says. There was a Roman emperor that said that the image and the word cross should be cast out of the minds of the Roman citizens. Just the word was scandalous. Just the word brought shame and yet, what we proclaim as believers is that God died on the cross in the most shameful way imaginable. And that is the way to salvation. We, for many of us, we grew up in the church. We heard the blood proclaimed. We've heard the cross since we were a little kid. So for some of us, it's become kind of desensationalized. Like somehow we have thought it to be a normal thing that someone would die on the cross. We've thought it's a normal thing that someone would bleed for someone else. We've thought it a normal thing for us to accept that our life comes through death. But to the world... To say that all your problems are solved through death? That if you want to know God, that you must die to self? That you must accept that Christ placed it on the cross and nailed it there? That's crazy talk. That's absurd. Give me a sign. Reason with me. We give them the cross. Even for you this morning, you may stand in grief and mourning. 
and pain and suffering. You may stand with the weight of, under, of, of the knowledge that God has called you to proclaim this message of the gospel and what he gives you is the cross. And you may be tempted to say, that's not enough. It's not enough. Give me something more. He not only gives us the cross, he gives us a plan, right? We all go back to Matthew 28. It's probably one of the most preached on verses in all of Scripture. Go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've taught you. This plan, just as absurd as the message. God wants to use you and me to take the message of the cross to the world. I think many times, God, wouldn't it have been better for you to like leave Peter here forever? Wouldn't it have been better for you just to come back and show yourself to the world? Wouldn't it have been better to send someone else other than me? God, you know my past. You know my thoughts. You know my weaknesses. Surely there's someone better. And yet he looks at me and he says, I chose you. I chose you. I saved you for this purpose so that I might use you as a conduit of grace. And it wasn't just me. It's each one of you that sits here. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, he has chosen you. I agree it's crazy. But it is the wisdom of God that all might know and as we look at the, the absurdity of this message and of the craziness of this plan, we are, cannot help but remember that we are in total dependence on, upon him. The disciples bring to Jesus a little boy that's been possessed by a demon. And they're unable to do anything about it. Jesus you said we could cast out demons, but we can't do anything for this child. His dad is there, and his dad is pleading, someone do something. Jesus touches this boy, and he casts out the demon. He brings him back to sanity. He brings him back to wholeness. He saves his life. And the disciples say, why could we not do it? Why could we not do it? Jesus' response to them, it only comes through faith and prayer. Why could they not do it? Because they had learned to depend upon themselves. God had sent them out earlier, two by two, and they had cast out demons. And in the process, they had decided somewhere along the way that they, the disciples, were the ones that had the power to cast out demons. And they had forgotten that he had sent them in his name. That their dependence to be able to do those things was because of him. Church, church, have we forgotten that we have been sent on mission by him. And it's an absurd one. It's a crazy one. But have we forgotten that we can't do it on our own? 
And we, like the disciples, been sent out and seen the success of 150 years of gospel ministry in Vandalia and somehow came to the conclusion that it was because of us instead of because of him. Brothers and sisters, the work, this crazy plan, it can only happen when we depend upon him. It is by faith and by prayer. So what will we do? What will we do? That's our Jericho. Those are our streets. Those are our boundaries. Those are our walls. That's our mission. We are responsible for every we are responsible for every soul represented by that picture. And he has given us a crazy plan to take Christ crucified, to take Christ resurrected to each home, to each street, to each neighborhood, to each man, woman, and child. And we can stand here and think that if we just come up with a better program, if we just come up with a better plan, if we just learn and are trained a little better, that it will work better than anything that God has given us. Brothers and sisters, the only way the walls come down is by faith and prayer. Crazy obedience leads to amazing faithfulness of God. Are we ready for that? Are we ready? Are you ready to say, this is more important? Are you ready to say that I need to depend on him? We have to depend on him. And that means we have to be on our faces in prayer. Whether it's on a Wednesday at lunch for 30 minutes whether it's in your home every morning with your children, whether it's with friends who describe something impossible at Jericho in their life and you just simply say, I don't have the answer, but I know who does. Let me pray with you right here, right now. Not saying I'll pray for you, but to do it. Or we say, we just got to try harder. Brothers and sisters, are we willing to do crazy things with an absurd plan that we might see the amazing faithfulness of God? Or are we just going to walk the same way we always walk, never looking different than the world? Let me pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, I am so incredibly humbled so incredibly humbled this morning. Lord, that you have saved me. 
Lord, that I had this insurmountable problem in my life, that I was headed towards hell because of decisions that I had made, and you rescued me for a moment. You took me out of that, and you called me your son. You forgave me. And then you sent me on mission. Father, I thank you for every single brother and sister that sits here in this room this morning, for every church member, for every family member, Lord, that is present, for those that are unable to hear us or or be with us this morning. Lord, I am thankful for their heart for you. I'm thankful that you have saved them. Lord, I'm thankful that you have called them out, that you have adopted them. Lord, I'm thankful and and humbled that you have given us your name, that we bear the name of Christ. Lord, to a world that desperately needs you. And yet, Lord, I look at the things around me and I look at the insurmountable walls, the unscalable walls of this world, and I think, how is this possible? And Lord, I realize that it is only by you. Father, I pray. Lord, that you would help us as a church, Lord, to recognize our dependence upon you, to understand the need for crazy obedience that we may see your amazing faithfulness. Lord, I pray for those in this room. Lord, they're hurting. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are lost. Lord, I pray that are just stumbling around. Lord, I pray for those in this room who feel overwhelmed by the weight of the life, of, by the weight of what you've called us to. Lord, I pray for those that are discouraged this morning that have been begging, Lord, do something in our midst. Lord, I pray this morning that we would see the cross. And Lord, that we would follow you. Father, I pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ.